This is an RNZ podcast. From time to time on mainstream broadcasters like RNZ, you'll hear a message like this. If you think RNZ has breached formal standards either on air or in our online content, you have the right to make a formal complaint. This must be made in writing to the broadcaster first within 20 working days of the broadcast. To find out about those standards or to lodge a complaint, go to rnz.co.nz and type formal complaint into our search engine and you'll be directed to our formal complaints page. The standards were prepared by broadcasters including RNZ. And of all the watchdog agencies which hold media to account for the content they publish or put on air, the BSA is the most muscular. Others are self-regulatory, but the Broadcasting Standards Authority is backed up by the law, the Broadcasting Act of 1989 to be specific. Its rulings are effectively legal documents, which can be appealed in the High Court, and uniquely, the Broadcasting Standards Authority can order errant broadcasters off the air for really bad breaches of the broadcasting codes and even make them apologise, though it hardly ever does those things. But from time to time, the BSA does make them pay a modest amount for breaking the rules. For example, last year, Heather Duplessy-Allen described the Pacific Islands as leeches on us, more than once on News Talk ZB. And after public complaints about that, the authority found that those comments breached the standards for good taste and decency, and also discrimination and denigration. The authority ordered News Talk ZB to broadcast a statement that made that clear, and then to pay $3,000 in costs to the Crown. And no other media watchdog can do that. But now the Broadcasting Standards Authority is shifting its focus a little. The BSA has announced what it calls a strategic refresh, which puts the spotlight on harm and also promises increased engagement and education with broadcasters and the public. And it's got a new vision statement, freedom in broadcasting without harm. But who decides what's harmful and why? In these days of angst and argument about free speech, hate speech and freedom of expression, that's a thorny issue for an agency that's backed up by the law. The Broadcasting Standards Authority's latest Statement of Performance Expectations has more on this new approach. For instance, it says we will also assess what further changes to the broadcasting codes may be required taking into account the unprecedented terrorist attack in Christchurch. So what changes might these bring, and how will broadcasters react to any new rules about that? Questions I put to the BSA chair, Judge Bill Hastings, and the authority's chief executive, Belinda Moffat. What the authority does when it receives a complaint is it balances the right to freedom of expression, the value of the expression, against what potential harm may have arisen. So what um, the authority and, and the BSA has, has elected to do is to say, let's make sure we are putting the spotlight on the fact that harm is a really important part of what we do. That boils down to what some people find harmful, what some people find offensive. Are you changing the way you look at that? What we are there to do is to reflect our society and our community values. And there are varying views about what is harmful. So what the authority does when it's looking at whether a broadcast has caused harm is they look at the context, they look at the surrounding facts, and they also, as I say, they look at the really important role that broadcast media has to play, which can be to entertain, it can be to inform, and it can be to educate us. So we have to look at the broader context of the program in making that assessment of harm. So Bill, that's an assessment you've had to make as a former chief censor as well in your previous post. What do you make of this concept of harm? Because I think right now people are thinking about this more than they ever have before because of you know political, social yeah. changes in yeah. our country. Well, I, think, I think that's right. You know, when I was 
the chief censor. I was operating under a, a different statute. Mm-hmm. Um, as chair of the Broadcasting Standards Authority, it's a, a different statute again with different different criteria. We have standards. Um, as Belinda said, harm is um, basically we've always had to balance that uh, against the freedom of expression. I mean, we're not regulating um, just for the sake of regulating. Uh, we have to regulate both to prevent harm uh, up front uh, if we can. Uh, and that's why we have codes. Uh, that's why we have standards. That's why we have a sort of education program, you know, to arm parents and caregivers uh, about the tools they can use to make sure uh, you know, vulnerable segments of society, particularly children, mm-hmm. um, are not exposed to things uh, that could harm them, uh, both, you know, the harm that broadcast can cause to vulnerable segments of society, as well as um, preserving the broadcaster's freedom of expression, which is not absolute, but uh, which is an important uh, thing to take into account. When you mentioned there certain sectors of society, particularly yeah. children, well, yeah. we, we know that children are a special case. They need to be looked after. They're yeah. young. That's obvious. Yeah. Yeah. But there are people right now arguing in other spheres of life and politics in our yeah. society that there are certain sectors of society that can be harmed, can be targeted. I mean, after Christchurch, people yeah. are looking at comments being made about the Muslim community. Others are saying, we need the freedom to criticize religions and all of this. Now, oh. when you're considering broadcasting complaints, under this new uh, approach of freedom and broadcasting without harm, yeah. is this going to play into that? Well, I think it inevitably does. I I can't um, make any comments on any particular complaints we've received. I mean, certainly there is a a kind of heightened awareness of things like hate speech, but even not even going that far. There's a heightened awareness of balance and fairness and accuracy uh, in reporting, which I think is uh, so much more important these days given the the sort of political and social environments we're in. Now, you said... You can't talk about specific complaints because yeah. we understand that's yeah. all going through a process. And, of course, all your decisions, they can be appealed in the high court. Absolutely. So yeah. these are effectively legal documents in a, in a yeah. sense. Yeah. Um, but have you seen, in say, since March, mm. more people people complaining about what they see in broadcasting? For example, we're seeing – it's probably too soon for complaints about this – but in recent days, Martin Selner, the Austrian far-right person, appeared in the news. There will be people who feel that's harmful to certain segments of New Zealand society, the broadcasters shouldn't be airing this. You may get complaints about that. Have you seen an upswing of people reacting to what we might call post-Christchurch coverage and figuring actually it's harmful that the media is doing this? There have been complaints of that nature. I think that's fair to say. So I think perhaps we just start you know, with Christchurch. We did receive a handful of yeah. complaints around um, how the events in Christchurch were broadcast. And we're dealing with those at the moment as... as, as um, Bill has said we we can't talk about the detail of that. Um, Having said that, you know, we accept that that was an extraordinary, Mm. unprecedented, horrific event Mm. and the media had to really step up in really really difficult circumstances. On on the other hand as well, we also understand it was really distressing for Mm. the Muslim community, for the families and friends of those victims and also for the wider community to see what was unfolding. But Though all of those features will be taken into account in the context, as I said before, when the, when the authority looks at those and, and decisions on those will come out soon. 
Moving on to what we're seeing post-Christchurch, um, we have seen a steady stream of complaints, but not necessarily of the nature that you have discussed, but the issue there is the complaints always go to the broadcaster first. Mm. So they will look at them, consider them, and it's only if the complainant isn't happy with what the broadcaster has done or said in response that they can come to us. So if, if Colin, you're aware that there are concerns being raised, maybe it is that the broadcasters are dealing with it at the front line, which, which we say is how the system is supposed to work, um, where they do have that opportunity to you know, consider the feedback. Um, maybe take it into account, um, or if they do have a justification for how they've dealt with an issue, provide that justification back to the complainant. Um, so, look, we, we're obviously acutely aware that these issues are really important, really important at the moment, and I think it's, it has been a driver for why we've said we want to make it clear to people that we really do look at harm, that we're not just looking at freedom of expression, that we do look and we do balance harm as well. Mm. But the, this nature of harm, I, mean, I know we started talking about it, but something that's a finer judgment about our modern life and society, something that's upsetting. Um, I mean, these are quite political concepts right now, isn't it? That people say harm is being equated by some people just being offended. That these are, these are debates. Do you really want to be drawn into these by raising this concept of harm? Number one, we've always looked at harm. So this strategy is about saying, making sure we, we put the spotlight on it. Um, in terms of has has the community's um, you know view on harm changed? So so in our in our assessments, um, we're always looking at whether it's just personal preference. Mm. So a key part to broadcasting standards is has the broadcaster signaled, signaled and signposted what their broadcast program is about, and that's a key thing we're really interested in making sure we work with broadcasters on. So have you told people what to expect in this program? Have you signaled that this is going to be a challenging debate about a political content, you know, concept for kids? Is it going to raise some mature mature themes? Is it going to have, you know, sexual references? And if, if the broadcaster has told their audience about what they're going to be talking about, that enables the audience to make a discerning decision. Do I want to keep listening? Do I want to participate in this debate? Then there is an element to where it becomes more harmful at the sharp end, and that's where we have a discrimination and denigration standard. And that is where we really are starting to look at the really sharp end of what the authority does, which is human rights. And if, and if human rights have been infringed and you can see harm from that, then the authority has the ability to step in and say, actually, in this situation, freedom of expression, the right to freedom of expression should be limited. And we're going to uphold the complaint and, we will, and, and they may then choose to use one of the orders that they have. Well, one specific case of that did occur just within the last few months. It was um, Heather Duplessy-Allen on the News Talk ZB station more than once saying the Pacific Islands are leeches on us. Yes. Uh, those are the words she used and, and stood by. So the authority there stepped in and said, look, this is uh, breaches the standard for uh, good taste and decency, I think, and denigration. Uh, so quite a, a hefty decision to a lot of people in the current social political climate about discussions of free speech, hate speech, freedom of expression. A lot of people felt she was just expressing a point of view and she and the station shouldn't be punished for that. Um, these sorts of decisions will be controversial, won't they, if you're going to try and decide whether people have been harmed or not? Because a lot of people just won't agree that that harm is significant. Look, that's right, and I won't go behind the decision. The decision is written and it, stand, it mm -hmm. stands for itself. Um, having said that, I think the key thing there was what the authority did is they said, let's look at New Zealand's community and how did the community respond and what was the broadcaster's response? And I think in that case, the decision says 
it was the opportunity to put the statements in context, but instead of putting the statements in context, there was a bit of a double downing on, on, the, on the statement that had been made, and I think that was one of the factors. Could I say too, Colin, that um, you know we wrestled with that. We debated it back and forth and back and forth. We have a four-member board. Uh, you know, at times it was three to one. Sometimes it was two to two. Sometimes it was three to one the other way. Um, but um, you know, we eventually came to what we felt was a really robust decision. Um, you know, after great extensive debate, <laughs> balancing harm against the freedom of expression. Um, and, um, you know, again, not not wanting to go behind the decision and letting the decision speak for itself. Um, you know, it's always appealable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they chose not to in and, this instance. Well, I, so, I, far. I, so, so far, anyway, <laughs> I don't know whether the appeal periods run out. Um, but, but, you know, the process that went into it, I think, was really good. So is that a marker, perhaps, that decision, if we're going to talk about harm? Because if you're going to single out a group of people, identifiable group of people, well, that's harm? It, well, it could well be a marker. It's not really for us to say. Uh, you know, don't forget that we have a body of decisions now going back 30 years. This is our 30th anniversary. You can wish us happy birthday. Happy birthday, indeed. Thank you. But, um, you know, this is, this is a huge body of precedent which people can point to. Uh, to be able to tell how we interpret the, 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 the standards uh, over the years so they could you know, guide their own behavior and practice uh, when they broadcast. Oh, albeit that they're always decided on by a, a different character oh, component yeah. of, of yeah, yeah. But there is, But there, there is a consistency over time. Um, Belinda, the uh, statement of performance expectations also says um, we will also further assess What further changes to the codes may be required, taking into account the unprecedented attack in Christchurch, broadcasters um, might feel they're equipped to make the best calls about that. Are you you actually looking at changing the codes in response to um, what happened in Christchurch? The key thing in response to Christchurch is how does a media report on a terrorist event? We don't have a terrorism standard. Um, Some jurisdictions have quite limited anti-terrorism standards. Um, So what we did after Christchurch was we did a a note to our broadcasters to say, to acknowledge, as I said before, the situation they were in and reporting. So we said, don't forget the standards, and I'm sure particularly the mainstream media will have said, of of course we know what our journalist principles are. Mm. Um, But we said, don't forget the standards. Don't forget about a piece of advice or guidance that we had put together the year before with broadcasters about how to use social media content in broadcasting. We also reminded them about what the DIA and Chief Censor had said about the GoPro, GoPro footage being objectionable material. After that, we put together a research paper which looked at international, international principles about reporting on terrorism. Um, we didn't want to tell the broadcasters what to do. The standards in New Zealand is, is their guideline from our perspective. And, uh, and, and there's also the, the Media Council um, principles as well. But we said there are international principles. We are dealing with an unprecedented event. This may be useful to you. And shortly after that, the um, New Zealand Media Freedom Committee also put out a statement about their collective view about how they would report on the trial, which we thought was a really proactive and sensible you know, step to take. And, uh, and you know, we, we support that initiative. What it's made us ask ourselves is, do we need to develop the standards? Do we need to have a standard about reporting on terrorism? I don't think in New Zealand we thought we'd have to get to that point, but we'll look at that. We had also 
prior to Christchurch identified the discrimination and denigration standard as being a standard we need to look at. To your point before about is this an issue where the community views have changed? Does, is our standard fit for purpose? Um, however, as there's now work underway looking into hate speech through the Ministry of Justice um, under the direction of the Minister for Ju- of Justice, we are going to wait to see what the outcome of that is and then we will look at the denigration and, dem- and discrimination standard and say, you know, do we need to make any adjustments to that? Importantly, if we make any changes, that will be in consultation with broadcasters because we work in a co-regulatory environment. So we, we work with the broadcasters to determine what are the appropriate standards. So those are two initiatives that we're going to follow through mm, post Christchurch. As you mentioned there, with the trial, they had time to get their heads together, think about a collective response they could all live with and agree on, which is great. But when the event was actually underway, we did see different decisions making. So Television New Zealand, for example, decided to use selected non-violent parts of the gunman's video, later declared objectionable by the chief censor. Um, Other broadcasters didn't. Also a difference of opinion between, I know it's not broadcasting, but the two main newspaper publishers about um, whether the manifesto of the gunman should be referenced, referred to. Uh, One chain said, don't talk about it, don't amplify it. The other said, no, important to understand it. So they're going to make different decisions, different calls on these things. They won't like it, will they, if you do, even if in consultation with them, lay down a standard which they think restricts their right to decide what's the important thing for their audience. I think the key thing is these are standards, yeah. they're principles. We don't, the, the Broadcasting Standards Authority has, has never, has always tried to not be prescriptive because the circumstance and the context is always highly important to how a standard applies. Yeah. Sorry, oh, I was just going to say, and it's not it's not sort of pre-release um, uh, restrictions or bans, mm. right? So th- these are standards which have been created with the broadcasters. Um, and I have to say, you know, on the on March fifteenth, um, I was in court that day, so I didn't see the um, uh, the live broadcasts. Uh, but but obviously, after court, um, I tuned in as as we all did in, in our court. Um, and, um, you know, I, I just want to acknowledge the incredibly difficult decisions that had to be made on the spot, you know, that, you know, every minute by minute virtually um, that day that the broadcasters um, had to make. And I also want to acknowledge the incredibly distressing uh, content uh, that was being broadcast that day as well. So again, you know, this is this is the sharp end of of that balancing exercise between the freedom of expression uh, and and harm. Well, another thing you've also looked ahead to, I think, uh, for the for the coming year, um, in the year ahead, we will review and update the election program codes. Um, it says now, in, in what way do you think you might need to change them? Was there something that happened back in 2017 that uh, made you think, oops, the the standards need to change? There's three reasons for that, Colin. Um, Number one, part six of the Broadcasting Act was amended back in 2017, which took away opening and closing addresses. So we did have a standard that related to that, so that's no longer relevant. Um, We we disapplied it in the last uh, um, election, but we we want to have our code um, up to date. Secondly, the election code has always just had the the standard, and it's never had guidelines. And we now have a good body of um, decisions from the authority over the last two elections that's got some really useful principles. So we've now taken this opportunity to take some of those principles and and turn them into guidelines so that people understand how the the standards apply. 
Thirdly, there was a Court of Appeal decision back in 2017 in relation to the Planet Key um, video, which enabled the court to confirm that election programs for the purposes of broadcasting are only those programs which are broadcast for or by political parties or candidates. It doesn't, it doesn't relate to third-party um, uh, programs. So when, when the election comes along and you choose to do some election programs, Colin, your programs are subject to just the normal standards. It's not subject to an election program code standard. So we want to make sure that that's also clear um, in the code. So we're really just giving more information to people to understand how this quite bespoke and specific election programs code applies. Yeah, because people are always confused about what constitutes an election program or an election message at, at that time of year. The Planet Key bit video, by the way, um, referred to an original song mm. created by Wellington musician with a satirical video attached, which was having a pop at the National Party and John Key specifically, and it came out in the relevant period, didn't it, before, right. before the election. It was effectively, well, he couldn't, he, it couldn't be broadcast under the rules as they stood, and the song couldn't be sold effectively. That was the outcome of that, wasn't it? I think that's right. I think they did take the, the song and the video um, off air at the time. Which a lot of people felt was censoring his right to freedom of expression. Yeah, and I think, and, and look, and it provided an opportunity for the Electoral Commission um, and the Broadcasting Standards Authority um, to seek guidance from the court, and we now have a clear understanding, and, and that's really useful. So, so, so we want to make sure that that gets carried into the code and, and the work we do, and, and we've engaged really positively with the Electoral Commission to, you know, because we are both concerned with making sure everyone understands how the rules work, what the standards are, and are able to then operate in that in that kind of more certain environment. So, so that's what that piece of work will do. And also, finally, uh, we have a critical role to play in supporting the review of content regulation in New Zealand to ensure we have a regulatory system that supports public media and a healthy democracy and promotes well-being of all New Zealanders. Um, very fine sentiments there, but uh, how will the content regulation system change? I mean, there's different regulators for different aspects of the media. Is this all in play now? Well... Colin, uh, this is I, I love the future, um, but I think to put it in context, you have to look to the past, um, and this has always been in play. I mean, I remember, I remember in the early '90s going into Doug Graham's office to talk about uh, media regulatory design. Mm -hmm. um, um, so this this has always been in play, and I think if you, if you if you if you look at what's happened, um, every now and then. Uh, government sort of you know creates a new edifice um, that regulates content uh, and which is a, an attempt to be future proofed but then you know technology changes um, so they they add, they the law follows technology it's always about two steps behind technology um, and what ends up happening is that you know additions and amendments and quick fixes are sort of sticky taped onto the original edifice of the law all these uh, amendments and additions they focus on content but uh, they're, they're, they're applied because of a technology change. I think what really needs to happen, and this is you know, going to be a decision for the government, not me, but I think what really needs to happen is that um, the focus needs to be on the content, but it has to be future-proof. So it needs to be um, platform or technology agnostic. Mm -hmm. um, and that, to me, would be the ideal thing. What the model will be, I don't know. I mean, there's three models operating now uh, in New Zealand. There's the New Zealand Media Council model, which is an industry self-regulation thing. 
Um, at the other end, there's the uh, Office of Film and Literature Classification model, uh, which is a, a pre-release classification sure. uh, a model with, with criminal sanctions. And kind of in the middle, uh, you have the Broadcasting Standards Authority, which is a co-regulatory model. Um, uh, which uh, you know means that we we engage with the broadcasters uh, to develop codes. They're the front line for complaints, uh, and the government, the state, ends up being the backstop, which is uh, the Broadcasting Standards Authority. There's overseas models uh, as well that the government could adopt. I mean, the B- the BBFC in, in the United Kingdom is an industry body uh, which has been given statutory powers uh, with respect to, for example, videos. So quite what the model will look like, I don't know. But I think the important consideration uh, is that um, you got to focus on the content, which has been of the same concern for a century. You know, sex, horror, crime, cruelty, violence, privacy, uh, balance, fairness, accuracy. Uh, that's, that they've been consistent forever. Sure, um, but if, if you turn on like a smart television today, if you own one, you yeah. can call up YouTube with its smorgasbord of the world's video yeah. content. You yeah. can call up Netflix, which is a curated a video on demand service as easily as you can call up TV One, Two or Three, which are free-to-air channels exactly. that have a separate, a separate and, regime. And the law account. has to deal with convergence, right? Mm-hmm. That, I mean, this, this is what you're talking but is about. But is there a government appetite to do this, to bring you all into line? Because yeah. in the past, they haven't, they've looked at it and haven't really shown an appetite for bringing regulatory system and overlapping responsibilities up to date with the technology? That's a question you have to ask the government. But you, um, you want this to happen. You are saying well, you, you are urging for this. I don't think it's just us. I mean, I think it's, I think it's just a common sense thing. Um, you know, the focus needs to be on content. It's always been on content, but it needs to be platform technology agnostic. So if, if, the, if the, but if, if the government does say, okay, let's do that, let's, let's, uh, let's try and bring the regulatory regime up to date, does the Broadcasting Standards Authority want to extend its... Uh... No, this is not about patch protection. This okay. is about what's good for New Zealand. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think, I think. Um, I mean, I, again, it's, it's a decision for the government, but I can see, I can foreshadow, I can, I can envision um, uh, a single lean uh, government body um, that, as I say, is concerned with content regardless of the platform it's conveyed on. I, think I, I mean, I'd only add to that that I would, from from what we understand, can see is that the government is absolutely um, aware of the changing landscape. Um, Colin, you and I had a conversation about convergence. Convergence has happened, mm. um, and, and I think you've made that point. Um, and we have new technologies all the time. What we are doing in our current cloak of our current act um, of 1989 is saying, how does our act apply to these new technologies? And we're at sensibly and appropriately applies we'll we'll make sure that we we engage with those new technologies to ensure they understand the standards they're working with us they understand they're at the front line of the regulatory environment um, but I think that the government's aware of the changing legis- changing landscape and the, 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 the fantastic work that's been undertaken in relation to Christchurch Call is a really good example mm. of that, um, where we're able to bring the important players, which is the technology providers um, a- a- and the state, and then ultimately it's also the consumer. Why, why was that a well. good a good outcome, though, the Christchurch Call? We don't really know what's going to change as a result of Oh, not of outcome, that. initiative. Okay. To, to, to acknowledge that there is, there is work that needs to be done in this area, and that is the work that is being that is being undertaken so I, I guess I just think it's an example of awareness of new technologies and the fact that 
new things need to be explored. And could I say, Colin, I was talking about this at Duke University last last month. Um, the Christchurch Call is a really interesting document because it talks about obligations of governments. It talks about obligations of uh, service providers, but it also talks about obligations of governments and service providers to work together collectively uh, to do certain things. And I can't think of the last time that we had, I mean, this is a non-binding thing, so you can't call it a treaty, mm. but um, I can't think of the last time that we had uh, an agreement or a, or a memorandum of understanding between a bunch of governments and a bunch of private online service providers that basically acknowledges the power that these online service providers have, but which also creates this kind of co-regulatory uh, environment where they both work together to address harm. But but on that, you do say, we intend to increase, uh, this is the Broadcasting Standards Authority, we intend to increase our guidance work with broadcasters, ensure they pos- po- properly classify and warn audiences, etc. Um, but if you're the public, whether it's Christchurch Call or the BSA, the public wants these regulatory bodies from time to time to bring the hammer down. Mm. You know, sure, you can meet with them and make sure everyone understands everything, but the public wants you to enforce the standards. Uh, uh, and ultimately, we're the backstop, right? Yeah. Ultimately, everything comes to us. Mm. Uh, if it's not adequately resolved uh, at first instance by the broadcasters, then it comes to us, and, and we are the hammer. You're right. So when you um, say we will increase our guidance, what guidance do they need? The guidance they need to deal with uh, how they classify uh, programs up front, the guidance they need to deal with complaints when they come in at first instance to them, um, so that I guess really it minimizes our job. We get fewer complaints if they're if they're actually uh, you know complying with the standards that we have developed together. Um, but all the while, as Belinda says, recognizing you know the value of uh, the freedom of expression. That was the chair of the Broadcasting Standards Authority, Judge Bill Hastings, and the authority's chief executive, Belinda Moffat. And there's a longer interview with them about all those issues in the online version of the story on the RNZ website, where you can also find links to the Broadcasting Standards Authority's Statement of Performance Expectations, which outlines its plans for refreshing its role as the broadcast media's official watchdog.